Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Greater Good, a series of conversations on policies that matter for our future with leaders from government, business and academia. I'm Melinda Salento, Chief Executive of CEDA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. Before we get started with today's episode, I'd like you to take a few seconds to rate and subscribe to our podcasts. This means you get new episodes in your phone as soon as they go live. And of course, rating our show helps others to find it too. So thank you. Today, we're taking a look at Queensland, where the results of the recent election have been overshadowed by a very high profile and contentious presidential vote in the United States. Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has now won a third term with a swing of more than 5%. It's fair to say that she can no longer be known as the accidental Premier. But the state has taken a significant economic hit from the COVID-19 pandemic. Unemployment is high, expected to jump to 8.5% this financial year, which puts it as one of the worst in the country. To discuss the road ahead for the Sunshine State, I'm joined by Senior Lecturer at Griffith University's School of Humanities, Dr Paul Williams. So, Paul, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Uh, I think we've had the results of the last three seats in Queensland just today or overnight. Is that right? Tell us what's happened there today. Yes, that's right. There were three seats in doubt. And a couple of days ago uh, in the seat of Corumban, which is normally pretty roll gold LNP territory, uh, was finally given back to the LNP. Um, that's been a troubled seat for the LNP. They almost lost in a by-election early this year when the Labor government got a swing to it, an incredibly rare set of circumstances. Uh, and uh, it's come down to the wire, you know, a, a couple of hundred votes in Corumban, and it's gone back to the LNP. So that is now an ultra-marginal seat that the LNP won't be happy about having so marginal. Uh, and Labor has picked up two other seats which have um, uh, 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 that have been on on the wire. Uh, one is Bundaberg, which is traditionally a Labor seat, but it's fallen into LNP hands in recent times. So that's gone back to the Labor Party. And the other seat is Nicklin, which is on the Sunshine Coast, and it's been in independent hands and conservative hands. And uh, and the fact that it's fallen to Labor, I think, is indicative of the problems that the LNP has, including on the Sunshine Coast, uh, where the LNP should be again in possession of roll gold. LNP territory. So the swing was pretty pronounced. Yeah. Well, it, it's been nearly two weeks since the election. Uh, and I think, you know, the results that you're just talking to now uh, confirm that it was an unexpectedly strong win for Anastasia Palaszczuk. Uh, she has a four-year term ahead of her. It's the first four-year term in the state's history. What are you expecting uh, the Premier to do with this strong win? Well, it's the first four-year term since 1893. Uh, you know, we did have five-year <laughs> terms before 1893, but, yeah, so it's been a long time between drinks. It's been a long time between four-year terms. This is our first fixed uh, term of parliament also, which is also critical because it changed. Uh, we knew the election date in advance, and from here on we'll also always know that the election date in advance is the last Saturday in October, and that, of course, has changed the way that the parties campaigned, and that contributed to the low-energy campaign. Uh, it was quite a low-energy campaign. Um, it seemed that the, there wasn't a lot of voter interest, uh, obviously, we didn't have federal leaders except for Scott Morrison's sole uh, trip to Queensland. Uh, and some say that played into the government's COVID management theme, um, where it was an austere, sober and low energy campaign, and therefore that helped incumbency. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think, you know, with the borders, uh, I think, still closed to Victoria and Greater Sydney, obviously played uh, an important role or a dominant role in the campaign, COVID and, and the stance on, on borders and, and things like that. Um, and the Premier's sort of tough border policy, I think the consensus is, helped her to win this election. How much longer do you think the state economy can take that border closure and do you think it continues, you know, is, is there going to be a point where it actually starts working against the Premier if, if she doesn't move? Yeah, look, the, the, the question of the border closure, there's no doubt that this election was framed around COVID and COVID management. Um, but having said that, I I sort of balk at the, the um, hypothesis that without COVID, Labor would have lost this election. There's no evidence for that. Mm. Um, and I strongly suspect that, they, that Labor would have won this election Anyway, perhaps maybe it wouldn't have picked up the couple of extra seats that it, it did win um, because COVID, again, it's a quite a complicated sort of set of circumstances because incumbency doesn't necessarily mean, um, incumbency during a crisis does not necessarily mean re-election. Um, but what it does do is it offers governments an opportunity to frame an election in favourable ways and therefore see its message um, accessed uh, in a way that we, we would like to. So, for example, yeah. this, this election was framed very much around, as I said, generally a COVID management election. And within that, the government very adroitly used its rhetoric to pose, in in not so many words, uh, a, a referendum on three questions. And one, of course, was uh, leadership. And it asked, really, the Queensland people, again, not in so many words, but it framed its campaign around making Queenslanders ask themselves, whom do they prefer as Premier for the next four years? And that was what Labor was hoping would occur because the election, uh, because we know that Anastasia Palaszczuk has always been streets ahead of Deb Brackington as preferred Premier. Uh, and we know that yeah. Palaszczuk had fairly strong uh, approval ratings. Um, so the Queensland electorate is not in love with either major party. Um, and they're certainly not in love with the Labor government, which many people have felt that over the first two terms has been rather ordinary, has been um, perhaps saddled with some crises, including integrity crises. But Anastasia Palaszczuk's leadership has been its one key strength. So Labor was very happy for this election to be moulded around a referendum on leadership, which they knew Deb Frankington could never best Labor in. So that's why I argue that this election probably was going to be won by Labor anyway, simply because Deb Frankington was a drag on the LNP vote. And interestingly, not just in the southeast, but also in regional Queensland, which is unusual for a regionally based LNP leader. Uh, the second question was yeah. based around COVID management specifically, which again, opinion polls tell us that uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk was well rewarded. Um, and underneath that, uh, it was a referendum on the border management. And again, a narrow majority of Queenslanders uh, showed that uh, they wanted the borders kept closed. Um, and there was a bit of a wobble in the government's strong border policy around June and the calls from Scott Morrison down down to the state LNP and others and small business was to open the borders. And precisely at that point, we saw the second Victorian wave emerge and yeah. then the narrative changed again and it came back into Palaszczuk's position. So my argument would be that the, that the Labor Party was always destined to win this election on the strength of leadership alone. But uh, the but there's the COVID offered an opportunity for Labor to channel a, a different message and consolidate that win. Um, and but having said that, you're quite right. The Queenslanders now that the election is is done, 
uh, Queenslanders' patience for the closed border is wearing thin and it couldn't possibly go into the new year with, um, you know, the, the same tough border position. So Queenslanders yeah. are absolutely champing at the bit to get the border completely open to the rest of Australia. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not surprising that uh, the border issue came up in June. Um, you know, I'm, of course, here in Victoria, and one thing we Victorians love to do in June, July and August is is head up north. Uh, so it's not surprising, I think, that that's when the pressure point, you know, started to build a little bit, yeah, which takes me to this, this question around tourism. Uh, and, you know, you talked about the way the election was framed. You didn't manage the, the E-word economy, Obviously, tourism's taken um, a fair blow with the borders closed, and, and my understanding was that was certainly an issue in uh, down the south of the state uh, and on the border with New South Wales. Um, but it looks like you know Queenslanders have maybe got out and about a little bit more, and they've been travelling around their own state. H- how do you think the industry is holding up? And you know, you you said really they can't keep the borders closed past, you know, Christmas and into the new year. Is, is that mainly because of tourism or is it broader than that? Uh, it's, it's both. It's largely because of tourism and attendant small business on, play, in the, on the Gold Coast and perhaps around, you know, North Queensland, around Cairns and Townsville and uh, Barron River, uh, which we see, you know, I, you know, I haven't been to North Queensland for a little while, but I'm hearing that there are a lot of boarded up uh, shops in, in those main regional centres. Um, but yeah, going back to this economy question, uh, yet yeah, look, the, the, econo- the, the economy did feature in the state election, and you might even say it was another referendum question because opinion polls did show that Queenslanders, again, paradoxically, a majority of Queenslanders approved of the Labor's post-COVID economic management plan more than the LNPs, which really stuck in the core of the LNP because that's something that the LNP should have going for them, that they are the superior economic managers at state or federal level. Well, the Queensland electorate didn't say, see that, see it that way. And that was another reason why the LNP had a setback. Um, and despite that, you know, obviously there was lots of media um, uh, criticism of the closed borders because of tourism and small business. There were lots of, um, you know, the small business community itself. We had, uh, you know, individuals who were flying planes across the sky saying Anastasia Palaszczuk is a heartless person. Uh, you know, so there was a very concerted effort to paint Palaszczuk as the as the dark bogey of of the Queen, of Queensland politics and of the Queensland economy, but clearly it was that just was a loud and noisy and significant minority. There was a quite larger majority of Queenslanders whom I call I'm calling the grateful electorate. Uh, they seem to have expressed gratitude to the uh, Labor government for um, not turning Queensland into Victoria. Um, and as I wrote in the conversation a couple of weeks ago. With the results that we've seen in the Northern Territory, the, the ACT, uh, New Zealand, and now Queensland, it, we've seen the relatively easy return of incumbents and the idea that um, it seems that voters are giving a free pass to governments on things like high debt, high deficit, and high unemployment. Um, now, incumbency, as I said before, incumbency is not necessarily a free pass back to government. Uh, in the times of crisis. It's what you do with that incumbency. We can clearly see that in the United States, incumbency didn't help Donald Trump. Um, so it's what you do with the instruments of governance with that, uh, yeah. with that uh, incumbency. It is interesting, though, because, um, you know, when you look at uh, the sort of at least some of the analysis coming out of the US, uh, to your point about, you know, who's the, the issue seems to be who does seem to be the better manage, manager of the economy. So I think... My sense is that it looks like the electorate is is giving a little bit of a free pass on 
um, on on the, the the economy as it sits right now. Perhaps understanding that this is you know this crisis that uh, is is difficult to control, and you know getting the the you know COVID under control does have implications for the economy. It does mean higher debt, but in a sense, they're sort of looking forward and you know taking a position on who they think is is best placed to lead the the economy through recovery. So maybe that's one interpretation. And I think with you know with the budget coming up, I'd be really interested then in what your expectation is that, you know, in terms of what the government's going to do with that budget, possibly to cement, if you like, those community expectations that they are the best ones uh, to take you know, the, the Queensland economy forward. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and in terms of perceptions of economic management, um, I think Labor did, despite a, a, an improved performance of by Deb Fractions in the last 10 days of the campaign, um, I think Labor did actually um, gain an advantage over the LNP because that's when the debate really did turn to economic management. And the LNP was criticised, A, for its very late release of costings, and um, the sense that the costings were rather vague. So we had, for example, the LNP's $33 billion upgrade of the Bruce Highway to dual carriageway all the way to uh, north of Cairns. Um, and yet this was dependent on 80% Commonwealth funding, which hadn't been secured. And there was a range of other loopholes that the, that the Labor Party was able to uh, pick up. Uh, and, and so the electorate, I think, walked away thinking, well, it's a, it's a, bit, it's a bit dodgy, it's a bit... It's, it's a lot of gaps in, mm. in this. And Labor was up front and saying, we're, we're going to be up front about this. We have to, yes, we've got high debt. And you know what? We're going to borrow $4 billion more. Um, we, you need to borrow to build. And that was Treasurer Cameron Dick's mantra. You need to borrow to build. And that seemed to resonate, particularly in regional Queensland. So obviously in, in, in Brisbane, um, uh, which is a, a finance capital, there'd be a lot of nervous middle-class LNP voters about the um, debt and deficit. But in regional Queensland, which is um, much more economically sensitive, um, you know, their, 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 their fortunes are relying on the resources industry, for example, the extractive industries and agriculture as well. Um, there seems to be, much, and often there are a lot, you know, huge enclaves of working class voters who are tempted to vote uh, for One Nation before they vote for the LNP. Uh, there, there's a sense that, you know, that you know, yes, it's debt and deficit are okay if it means giving back, giving a job to my teenage son or daughter who's about to leave school. Um, so, in, in that sense, that was the perception that, that that you're quite right. That was the perception that Labor was had a better potential coming out of COVID to manage this. Um, and and I think the budget will reflect that. I think it's going to be you know, it's the sort of budget that's not going to get it, Queensland's AAA rating back anytime soon. You know, we are going to plunge deeper into debt. Um, but the, the the consensus, I think, in Cabinet, and particularly driven by a very pragmatic um, treasurer who's now head of the conservative-leaning AWU faction, he's the leading minister in that faction now, um, he will be very much about jobs, jobs, jobs. It'll be a very pragmatic approach to the economic recovery of Queensland, I believe. Uh, you're going to expect to see things like we've, we've seen... Uh, in New South Wales, measures to attract uh, business into the into that state and business investment into that state is is that something that you're expecting to see in the Queensland budget as well? Uh, quite possibly, and, and in that sense, that's that's rather consistent with what Queensland's done for many a year. Uh, we know that the again Cameron Dick, the treasurer, was very um, vociferous in insisting that Virgin do not does not leave Brisbane. Uh, and Queensland has put in a bid to buy Virgin or with, with, be part of a consortium at least to buy uh, Virgin through um, our, our um, investment arm, the Queensland Government investment arm. 
uh, much to the criticism of the LNP, um, uh, you know, so saying that if Queensland can't manage its own debt, how can it go into more debt to buy a struggling airline, etc.? Um, so that's very that will be very much Labor's mission, you know. And um, you know, this started under Peter Beattie about this idea of pinching industries off other states and making them headquarter themselves in Brisbane. Um, I can see more of that happening. Yes, given that the you know the very difficult circumstances that Australia finds itself in, I'm not sure there's much low hanging fruit that Labor can pinch of other states. But um, certainly, that will be Queensland's mission. Yeah. Um, let me just change tack a little bit here, and again, it sort of um, looks at what the different states are doing, and we've seen the Queensland government make commitments too. And I'm talking specifically around uh, the vexed issue of energy. Um, the government has a target to get to 50% renewables by 2050, um, which will be helped in part by its new $500 million renewable energy fund. How, how has that policy played out um, across the state, particularly uh, in, in the coal mining electorates, which, of course, um, deserted uh, federal labour at the last election around this issue. And you talked about jobs, and this seems to be the real challenge here when we talk about energy, coal versus renewables, and what it means for industry and jobs in very specific locations. Yeah, it, 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 the, the short answer is it doesn't play well in those regional blue-collar electorates um, that have traditionally voted labour. Um, it, it obviously plays well in, in downtown Brisbane, um, and in middle Brisbane, it probably doesn't even play that well in the fringes of Brisbane, which again, are, even though there's strong Labor voting strongholds, there's also traditionally a strong, um, for example, One Nation vote, although the One Nation vote collapsed in, Bris in, in, a, in Queensland for different reasons. Um, so they're out of the equation. But the One, the one Nation voters, I think, is temporarily out and may well return. Uh, that's yet to be seen. Um, but that's, that is a problem. And that uh, one of the reasons why the Labor vote wasn't wedged um, in, uh, in, in Queensland because coal, re coal really didn't come up. It wasn't really much of an issue. Um, uh, it was a huge issue in the 27 state election when um, Anastasia Palaszczuk promised not to use public funds for, uh, to give a, a loan or to build a data infrastructure. That proved enormously popular and shifted the narrative and Labor was seen as, a, you know, again, strongly, a strong and parochial uh, leadership of the Labor government. Coal mining didn't really emerge in this election, um, so they were spared that wedge, uh, fortunately for Labor. Mm. Um, but look, it will return in the 2022, and actually I think there'll be a 2021 federal election. I think there'll be a federal election next year. Uh, I believe it'll be in, the, in around August. Um, and uh, that, so that will wedge Labor again if it doesn't get its act in order. And that's why we're seeing Joel Fitzgibbon making the noises that he's making currently in the federal Labor Party, um, because Labor is staring down defeat once again on current polling. Uh, and in Queensland, there are, again, they, they, they may well go further backwards on the issue of coal alone. Um, but at state labour, it may well blow up in its state labour's face as well. This is really almost like a wicked problem, an intractable problem. Um, there's, there is no easy solution. Perhaps the only solution is a very long-term one about reskilling and moving blue-collar coal miners into other industries, which, of course, Labor's talked about for a long time. But blue-collar electorates aren't necessarily interested in that sort of rhetoric. So it's really an intractable problem. Yeah, Paul, how do you think? I mean, I was just interested listening to the news this morning. There was uh, announcements of, you know, uh, big companies like Woolies, for instance, talking about um, being quite aggressive in their uh, efforts to get emissions down and commitments to 2050. Do you think that, you know, this wicked problem actually uh, can be addressed? I mean, with, with business 
seeming to pick, pick up the baton more on this, does that somehow take the pressure off the politics? It of this does, area? and it sort of adds to the critical mass, uh, you know, of, of public opinion. You know, if, 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 and if um, more players are moving in this direction, the critical mass will eventually tip the seesaw the other way. So there's no doubt at some point Australia will become um, perhaps, you know, even more aggressive than the the early Rudd government was in terms of getting carbon emissions down. Uh, and we already know that there's, there's starting to be some blowback. I've noticed a, a slight change in the zeitgeist. There's, there's more and more criticism of the Morrison government for um, abrogating or at least allegedly abrogating its 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 um, uh, carbon emissions targets, um, and I can see that this it's, could itself be a problem for the LNP at the twenty twenty one election. Although on current polling, the Labor Party's got more problems than the LNP. So it's you know it's an incredibly nuanced again incredibly nuanced set of circumstances. Um, but I think this, the wedging can can break both ways on this. The LNP is not itself isn't out of the yeah. woods on, you know, that, the, the, again, you've got, um, you know, middle Australians who aren't obsessed with the culture wars that perhaps one nation or the right wing of the coalition wants to push. They're much more concerned about things like um, carbon emissions or refugees or the environment in general. That uh, That may well be a wedge for the LNP itself at some future point. Yeah. Do you think um, the Western Australian Premier is looking across the country at the Queensland result and taking heart from that? Do you think we're going to see a similar result over? I WA? think so. Um, the WA opposition seem, doesn't seem to have been terribly like like the Queensland opposition, uh, and to some extent the federal opposition. They haven't been terribly um, vocal, but that's just that's part of the problem when you're living in times of crisis oppositions and crossbenchers tend to be starved of media oxygen. Um, so I'm expecting um, Mr McGowan to be returned relatively easily. Indeed, you know, early opinion polls uh, were showing that he was the most popular premier in the country. So before the second wave, I believe in Victoria, um, uh, Daniel Andrews was also more popular than Anastasia Palaszczuk. So paradoxically, um, Anastasia Palaszczuk was not doing terribly well in the premier states, although there's still more people approving than disapproving of her pandemic leadership, but she wasn't the, out, the she wasn't the stellar performer. People like Mark McGowan have been stellar performers, uh, so I would expect him to be easily returned as well. So, if if we see not too much changing of the of the chairs around the national cabinet table, how do you see solidarity or otherwise in national cabinet playing out in in the next year or two? And, you know, we, we obviously saw that institution playing a tremendously important role in the early stages of the COVID crisis. I think it sort of frayed a little bit <laughs> as we went through and uh, as there was the differences, if you like, around the balance between the economics and the health response uh, sort of played out a little bit more differently, uh, broke a little bit more differently, as you might say. Um, so what's what's your sort of prognosis for national cabinet? Is it is it going to be a vehicle to get progress across uh, the you know these really significant national policy issues which we need to get going now if we're going to get recovery of, of the sort that we need? Um, can we see everyone singing from the well, same look, song? I think team? national cabinet has been a surprise success. I don't think too many people expected it to be the success that it has been uh, when it was first announced. I think a lot of people thought this was going to be some sort of you know, um, perhaps some sort of uh, veneer or some sort of stunt or 
something that was, you know, just something, another product of government spin, um, you know, with, with, you know, with um, real power just around the prime minister's office, et cetera. Um, because when it was first announced, it was, there was no certainty it was going to be up for the long term, and, and it was no certainty that it was going to replace COAG. But now that it's done both of those things, uh, I think it is going to be around for the longer term, at least the medium term. Um, and I think everyone's been quite surprised at how efficient it's been. And so it's not only an administrative masterstroke, I think it's also been a political masterstroke by Scott Morrison um, because, you know, it's, it does lock in um, potentially um, dissonant Labor premiers into an LNP agenda through Cabinet Solidarity. Um, so it's, it's a very, very clever piece of political administration. Um, as you say, yes, the tensions have emerged more and more as frustrations over border closures have continued. But look, I think that's relatively constrained to this point in time. I suspect that, you know, if we look back 12, 24 months from now, and we look back, we might think in 24 months time, the national cabinet's working much better than it did even in 2020. Um, I, so I've potentially, I see a lot of success. I think, I think there's great potential for national cabinet to move forward. Um, and certainly I wouldn't want to necessarily see it thrown out with the bathwater when COVID is conquered. Again, it's still early days yet. I'm not exactly sure how, uh, well, you know, unless you're at the cabinet table, we don't know how the machinations of, of national cabinet work. But when you get things like, you know, phenomenon like a Labor Premier Palaszczuk, who has had public stouters with Scott Morrison before, when the Premier of Queensland comes back and says Scott Morrison's doing a wonderful job, uh, that gives you some indication of the co potential cohesion that national cabinet can make or, or offer. So I would say national cabinet, given that, given that it, it has, for the most part, it has offered a strong degree of unity. Uh, and uh, I see national cabinet has, a, has a, a fairly strong future to the medium term. Yeah, I think it's, you raised a couple of points that I think are really interesting. And, and I think it's a watch this space. I think one of the things that I've spoken to a few people about, and I've had a few chats with very senior former public servants who have, you know, quite have been quite close to the COAG process, for instance. And, you know, one thing that has come up from time to time is the lack of transparency, which you referenced in your in your comments. Which I think that's an interesting challenge because, um, you know, I think it. I, I wonder whether at some point people are going to actually want to understand a little bit more how the sausage gets made, if I can put it that way. Um, and I think the other thing, you know, it's interesting to reflect on, you know, premiers coming back and singing the praises of uh, of the prime minister and how federal government's operating. You know, I think when you're in the midst of a crisis uh, and people are spending, quite frankly, left, right and centre, as I think the consensus is they should have, that's a different ball game to when compromise has to be made and, and people have to cut their cloth uh, accordingly. I think the other point that someone made to me, which I found pretty interesting, was that the sort of um, the theatre of this national gathering is very different to COAG, not least because a, a lot of it has happened virtually. And so the parade of of, of premiers and and ministers into COAG, we're not getting that. And that, that, that of course, always presented an opportunity for you to put, put your own view before you went into COAG. So I think it's going to be fascinating. The point about transparency is a good one because even though it's called National Cabinet, it's not a cabinet as we understand it in Westminster systems, um, you know, with 30-year secrecy rules, et cetera. Um, and look, them, and, and while there are expectations that um, members around the cabinet table aren't going to blab to the media as they walk out of the building, it's 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 a hybrid of, of a cabinet's 
organization and a COAG, which of course is meant to be transparent. And as you quite rightly say, you know, you saw premiers uh, walking up the steps of, of the building and doing um, door stops about what they want and what they expect. And sometimes having a, a, a subtle or a not so subtle dig at their interstate colleagues or, or the federal government. So you're quite right. It's not, it, it can't be a wholly secretive like cabinet because there are different stakeholders involved, um, different levels of governance, which again are assured and, you know, under the constitution states are co-equal to the Commonwealth. In reality, we know that's not true, but at least in constitutional terms, the states have a say. Yeah, indeed. So that's that's I think a key pro, a key a, a key question. And as you say, given that we're living in times of stress um, and economic um, austerity and crisis and an emergency, um, we may and well have sub- suspended our expectations of transparency. But that obviously can't persist. Um, so it's some, we're going to need some a new level of transparency for national cabinet. Um, that's true. Absolutely. Well, Paul, um, thank you so much for your insights uh, today. I am gonna, I'm going to put a bit, wrap a bit of a bow around this uh, for listeners. Um, just remind them that yes, you did, you did call the Western Australian election for. Uh, I, should, I, I, I should put a caveat um, that that's if an election were held today. <laughs> uh, but of course, you've also called that the, there'll be a federal election in August next year. So we're, we're going to mark that in the calendar. Uh, and and flagged that we we haven't seen the end of energy as uh, as a wedge issue in in politics anytime soon. So um, I really appreciate the conversation and thanks for for your insights and being prepared to. It's my pleasure. How you see it. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks again.